Uh, thanks, Catherine. Let's ask God to help us as we come to his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful world, word that presents uh, Jesus to us as the Saviour. Uh, we pray in your mercy we would understand uh, why he's the Saviour, salvation he brings, and from the work of your Spirit we pray that we would be those who know that salvation for ourselves. Help me to speak uh, your word now truthfully and clearly. And help us all to receive it with understanding and to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We know that this man is really the saviour of the world. Now, if you've been coming to church for a while, you might have got used to words like saviour and world, but this is a stunningly big claim to make for Jesus Not some political great whose armies have brought some kind of peace to a warring world like a Caesar. Not some scientist whose breakthrough has prevented the spread of crippling disease or whose crop innovations have fed billions. But Jesus, a bloke so like us that at the start of this passage he's sitting down next to a well in the Samaritan countryside because he's tired out, weary. Jesus, saviour. The one who brings peace and wholeness, security and plenty, who rescues from danger, disease and destruction and brings a life of human flourishing. And not just the saviour of this or that person, but of the world. The world which is in John a description of human society, humanity organised to keep God out, to live life its own way without reference to God. The world in John is very big including potentially all people who have ever lived. And it is very bad, determinedly believing lies and rejecting the living God. Jesus, saviour of the world, is a big claim. But it's a claim Jesus does not correct or reject. In fact, it's an understanding of himself and what he's come to do that he seems happy to accept. Think about that. Saviour of the world. Aren't you suspicious of the big claims people or their followers make for themselves? I am, and this claim is kind of megalomaniacal. I've been practising that. Anyhow, it means he's very full of himself, right? This is either true or Jesus is not good. And what's the basis on which they make this claim? Oh, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. They make this claim on the basis of a conversation, on words. And yet I say to you this morning that this is true. Jesus, this weary man with dust on his feet, seeking a drink from this stranger, this Samaritan woman, is the saviour of the world and the only saviour of the world, your saviour, if you will trust him. But why should we be talking about a saviour for the world at all? Isn't life sweet? Haven't we just by ourselves, without reference to God, without needing God, got life worked out? Working together, can't we solve all our problems? That's what our world tells us. So to see why the world needs saving... Let's meet the world in a woman of the world, 
this woman of Samaria. What do we know of her and her life? Well, she is, verse 9, a Samaritan. That is, she's a resident of the area between Jerusalem and Galilee through which the shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee ran. Samaritans were thought by the Jews to be descendants of intermarriage between those who'd remained after the Israelites, after most of the Israelites were deported by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC, and the foreign conquered peoples the Assyrians had then settled there. What are the realities of her life, this Samaritan woman? Well, being a Samaritan means she is the heir of a generations-old hatred and a perpetual conflict between Jews and Samaritans. We know from the first century historian Josephus that there was constant inter-community friction, tension and violence between Jews and Samaritans. So like Serbs and Croats, Kurds and Turks, Catholic and Protestant in Ulster, like so many people of our world, she was living with the fear and the reality of violence. And she's a woman without the rights and social advantages of men in that society, dependent on them, a world divided on gender lines with privilege unfairly distributed. More, her life is marked by her failed pursuit of personal happiness and domestic security. Call your husband, Jesus said. I have no husband. You are right, says Jesus. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is, what you have just said is quite true. Now I don't know how you think about her having had five husbands. A bad woman perhaps unable to control her tongue or her desires. An unlucky woman falling for bad blokes who turned her out or good blokes who died on her. Or maybe her history is a combination of her own failings and the failings of the world she and we live in. But she's now a sad and desperate woman, not even married to this present bloke, no stability, dreams of a happy and secure home long gone. And with that disastrous personal life, she's now socially isolated. Did you see that? She comes at noon, that is, in the heat of the day. She comes at noon, verse 6, in the heat of the day when all the other women of the village would come at the cool of the day in the morning or the evening. And her daily life is one of drudgery. She's bearing water like many in our world still have to do, water for the day's needs. Not Her life is not, well, you can be whatever you want, you can fulfil your dreams, you can pursue your career. No, it's can I get today what I need for today? And tomorrow will be the same hard, exhausting tasks that I did today if I'm to live. And in addition to all that, hers is a confused religion. Jesus says, verse 22, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. She has a religious instinct, but she doesn't know the true and living God the God who can hear and save. The world we see in this woman of the world is marked by communal conflict and intermittent violence, hatred between groups, gender division and exploitation, personal failure, the grief of death, social isolation, condemnatory judgments and an incessant round of toil. 
That's actually what life looks like. In a world estranged from its creator, our world, a world which is under God's wrath. (coughs) That's right. That's where the story started. Remember the end of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. People don't become subject to judgment and condemnation because oh, they hear the gospel and then don't believe in Jesus. No, that verse says remains. <coughs> the world is already living under God's wrath for our rejecting God, our creator, our believing lies, our practicing disobedience to him. The woman shares in that. She lives in that world and every one of us shares in a world which is under God's wrath. And we're not just victims of living in a world corrupted and distorted by others' sin. We're not just sinned against, no. She and we are sharers in that sin, caught up and contributing to the world's rebellion, justly under God's wrath. In this woman, God shows us the world, life in rebellion to him. Divisions we can't heal. Wearisome toil, just to stay alive. Dreams and hopes for life and love, not realised or lost. Life with personal failure, we can't get past. Real grief, real loneliness and longing for it to be otherwise. In his conversation that Jesus initiates, in verse 7, with this woman, he uses, he's going to go on and use the picture of thirst for this woman and our world's condition. Now, you, you may have known thirst over these last couple of hot days. Thirst is disturbing, unsettling, only gets worse until it's satisfied, distracts from whatever else you are doing until it fills your thinking, and satisfaction is only ever temporary. A moment, a couple of hours, and it returns. This conversation starts with Jesus' physical thirst, his request for a drink. Uh, She's surprised. But Jesus has started this conversation to address her thirst. And here in this conversation we see what Jesus brings for the world, for this woman, the salvation he offers to the world, to us in our thirst. Now, it's obvious, wasn't it, as you're reading along, that the conversation was going on at two levels. She's always relating what is being said to physical thirst and to physical water. She hears living water as running water as opposed to the still dead water of the well. Even at the end, verse 15, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. You think, oh, she's doing well there. And then she adds, and have to keep coming here to draw Water. It looks like she's thinking that Jesus is offering water at her doorstep, a kind of better articulation system, a tap. But we know Jesus is offering something far greater. Just as he is far greater than the ancients, she's compared him to Jacob and his family. Jesus starts his offer with an observation about this life. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Will thirst again? That's true, isn't it? There is no lasting satisfaction here. It's the way we are. There is no lasting pleasure. The experience of life, whether of sex or food or power, satisfy for the moment, 
and then we hunger again. The peace we enjoy is for a moment and then disturbed. And our ultimate thirst is for life itself. We tire, our spirits run dry. We're worn down by toil, overcome by weariness, emptied by loss and grief, age and frailty. We thirst for life. And there comes a day when we can't come back to the well. Death ends our loves, takes away what we have laboured for, leaves us eternally unsatisfied, eternally thirsty. In response to our thirst, Jesus is not talking about better plumbing that makes our life easier. He's talking about giving lasting satisfaction to our souls, giving eternal life, life free from the curse and death, free from the sins that mar. Indeed, he says, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying that from me, in me, you will find lasting satisfaction. Now Jesus makes clear later on in John 7 that this living water is the new life of the Spirit, the life promised by God at the end time. Let anyone, says Jesus, who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit. Jesus says this life he will give will be within us and well up within us. It won't depend on us for its vitality and continuance. It's inexhaustible life, welling up, ever renewing, richly satisfying, starting now, enduring forever, the life that's fitted for the new creation, where we will know no want, grief, pain, death. This living water cannot be the life of this age, for that life is always under the judgment of the fall, always marked by death and toil and pain and grief. And so no one who only has the life of this age, no scientist, no politician, no general, no pop artist, no one who only has the life of this age can give this deep satisfaction, quench our thirst. Jesus alone can. But the conversation progresses through the woman's misunderstanding and, yes, through her avoidance. Oh, Jesus says, call your husband. Yes, and what does she do? What does she, do? she embraces that time-worn strategy. I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. We all do that, don't we? When the conversation becomes uncomfortably personal, we ask the curly question, the religious question. You know, if somebody's talking about your sin or your longing or your aching thirst and you don't want to be challenged, exposed, you feel uncomfortable with having to see that life run your way still leaves you thirsty. So you ask, well, what do people ask? Oh, if God's good and almighty, how's their suffering in the world? Or... Who made God? That's a conversation stopper, isn't it? That's exactly what she does. Uncomfortable with Jesus' knowledge of a life, she redirects the conversation and asks a question about the fundamental religious division between Samaritans and Jews. The Samaritan insistence that the Lord could be worshipped in their own temple on Mount Gerizim 
and not in the temple in Jerusalem. That was a major issue of contention between the two groups. But Jesus replies that the reality of the relationship with God that he brings is so much greater. This time-honoured dispute is irrelevant. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is clear, isn't he, that the Samaritans are in error. They worship ignorantly, a God they do not know. The Jews worship the true God who has revealed himself through Moses and the prophets. But a new time is coming, has come with the coming of Jesus, when the worship of the true God will be open to all at all times and in all places. It won't be localised in this temple or that or confined to set days and activities. At this time, genuine worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, they are not separable. You can't be a worshipper with the Spirit and without truth, and you can't be a worshipper with the truth and without the Spirit. It's in spirit. It is a capital S Spirit. God, Jesus is talking of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about sincerity or inwardness of worship. That was already required and expected in the Old Testament that they would love God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. No. Jesus is talking of the Holy Spirit. With Jesus coming, genuine worship is in or by the Spirit. Genuine worshippers are sustained in relationship with God by the Spirit of God. Jesus brings the Spirit that cries, Abba, Father, the Spirit that changes us so that we are animated, directed by that Spirit to delight in God and his ways, to do his will. We have that new life where we love God. And genuine worship with Jesus coming is in truth by embracing the Father's revelation of himself in the Son of God, Jesus. Jesus speaks the truth. Jesus is the truth. I am the way, the truth and the life. It is by listening to Jesus, trusting him, believing that his words are the words of God, that we can come to know the true and living God and know how to respond to the real God in the way that properly acknowledges his greatness and rule. That is, we can come to worship God properly. This worship in spirit and truth, says Jesus, accords with God's nature. Just as God is light and God is love, God is spirit, invisible not constrained in space and time, not limited by a body, life-giving as he has life in himself, unknowable unless he reveals himself. So we must worship him anywhere and everywhere. Oh, we can only worship him where we embrace his revelation of himself in his son and where we are sustained in life by his life. We must have spirit and truth to worship the true God truly, genuinely. But hang on, we, we started off thinking of Jesus as the saviour of the world and now we're talking about worship. But we, 
our society don't think of genuinely worshipping God as salvation. That's true, isn't it? As a society, we've separated our well-being from our relationship with God. Our society claims that we can live quite adequately, live prosperous and moral lives without paying any attention to God. And worship, that's just an add-on, a personal preference, not the key to life, wholeness, flourishing, salvation. Well, our society is the world, isn't it? And it is just expressing in its pride the world's lie that we can run our lives perfectly well without our creator. And it is a lie. God gives us life and breath and everything. Life itself and all our good comes from him. The sun and the rain, the hot wind and the cool, it's easy for God to humble us, isn't it, are all subject to him. And he is an active judge with his judgments enacted on the earth each day. Our life depends on God. Our death comes from alienation from God and there is no peace for the wicked. More, the life we were made for as those made in his image is the life of loving God, worshipping the living God. You see, at the heart of our longings, that restless dissatisfaction is that we are forever trying to satisfy ourselves by loving lesser things, seeking satisfaction in our idols and finding them lifeless. We will be forever thirsty until we are genuine worshippers of the living and true God. And to be worshippers the Father seeks and accepts, that's to be at peace with God. No fear of judgment. No being driven away from him by his holiness forever. It's to be able to come into God's presence, to live in his presence, to gaze on his beauty, to delight in his justice and righteousness. And his glory is inexhaustible and will always satisfy. To be able to worship him genuinely is to be assured of his help, of access to him. It is to know him. And Jesus says to know the living and true God and his son is to have life. At the end of this conversation, the woman never got the creek running at her doorstep. She's still going out to carry water. And we don't know if the bloke she was living with married her and they lived happily ever after. But she got more. To know that Jesus will give her living water and a real and enduring relationship with the living God. And he'll do this as the Messiah, God's chosen king, sent from the Father. But so far, it is all words. How will Jesus do this? How will he bring this new life? How will he bring us from the world into relationship with his Father, the living God? <coughs> well, when his disciples return and urge him to eat. Jesus declined. He's already, he already has food, he says. He is sustained, verse 34, and satisfied by doing the will of him who sent me and finishing his work. What is the Father's will for Jesus? What's the work Jesus must finish? Well, in John's Gospel, Jesus does many works, but he has just one work that he must complete. The work the Father has given him. 
is to be in his death the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knew that to be his work. On the night before he died, anticipating his death for sin the following day, in prayer he says to the Father, (coughs) I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And from the cross, dying there as the Lamb of God, the Lamb who brings forgiveness and freedom, he says, it is finished. His work is to give life by his death to all who will believe in him. His death deals with our sin, which is the source of our death. His death turns aside God's wrath at our selfish rebellion. And his death is so great a sacrifice that John, reflecting later on his death, says in his epistle that it is sufficient to cover over the offence of our sin and of any and everyone's sin, sufficient for the sins of the whole world, whoever believes. It is by his death that Jesus cleanses us from defilement and makes it possible for the Holy Spirit of God to come and dwell in us. It is by his death that Jesus makes it possible for us to draw near to the Holy God and be his genuine worshippers and know the peace and the satisfaction of that. Jesus in his death and rising is the source of the satisfaction of our longing for life and love. Jesus provides salvation to the world. And he brings that salvation to the world, to all kinds and types of people across the ages, by sending out messengers with his word, the word that promises life to all who trust him. People who, through preaching the gospel of Jesus, will reap a harvest from the world of those who are called to trust in Jesus. That's what he's speaking about to the apostles in verses 35 following. It's still four months until the harvest, don't you say that? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked, for others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. I sent you. Preachers of the gospel are Jesus' provision, his provision for the world. They don't go into the world on their own initiative. You did not choose me, Jesus said to his followers, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear much fruit. They are sent before he ascends. He breathes on them and gives them the Spirit and he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus sends out harvesters. Whose work do they share in? You remember verse 38? (laughs) Others have done the hard work. You have reaped the benefits of their labour. Who is the sower? The prophets? John the Baptist? Actually, ultimately, it is Jesus himself. Jesus, for the seed he sows, chapter 12, is himself giving himself for the life of the world. They reap the benefits 
of Jesus in his death. Jesus is the saviour of the world. He brings the living water that satisfies the new life. He brings the possibility of true worship, of peace in God's presence. He is the saviour of the world by his death. And it's by his initiative that the word of the living water he gives has come to us today. How can we share in the life Jesus brings? We and our society, unless we've been saved out of the world, we are the needy world for all our plumbing. Ours is still the world's web of enmity and hostility, division and disappointment, frailties and failures, toil and frustrations, grief and loss and death. That is our world. Well, the Samaritans show us how to respond to Jesus who offers living water. Uh, Verse 40, they urged him to stay and then because of his words, many became believers. We no longer believe just because of what you said, he said to the woman. We Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. That's how to respond to Jesus, listening to him, believing him. They heard the woman speak of her experience and they came to find out more. They gave time. Verse 40, to listen to this one who said he could give them life, bring them to know the true God. And listening to him, they were convinced and came to know him as their saviour. Now perhaps you're here this morning because your friends are saying Jesus is the saviour of the world, your saviour, that in meeting and trusting him, they have had their thirst satisfied. Well, if that's you, be like the Samaritans. Take time to learn more about Jesus by listening to Jesus for yourself, reading his words for yourself, and yes, reading his words with others who can help you understand them. If that's you, if you want to learn more, there's a little box in this Connect card that says, I'd like to attend Simply Christianity, and another that says, I'd like to read the Bible with someone. Tick that box if that's you. If you want to hear more of Jesus and what he offers, tick that box and we'll get in touch with you and we'll acquaint you with Jesus through his words. Or perhaps you've been coming here for a while and you've heard Jesus and you now know you believe in him. You actually think that what he says is true. Well, you should ask him for that living water. You should ask him to make you a genuine worshipper of the living God who loves you. That's prayer. He hears. He's alive. He is the saviour of the world. Ask him and come and talk. But of course our response can't just stop with believing for ourselves. The woman's response didn't. She tells her neighbours of her experience of Jesus, of what she's found. Now, look at that. She didn't have the whole story, didn't even have the crucifixion, but she brought them to Jesus to hear from him simply by speaking of her own dealings with Jesus, what she had learnt from him. Like her, if we've come to Jesus and found the life he brings, we we should want to share the life Jesus brings. Because, you see, Jesus wants people to know. Boy, he wants them to believe and find life. 
That's why he is sending out reapers into the harvest, those called and sent, those who bring the word of Jesus to the world so that others can hear Jesus for themselves. His desire is expressed in his word. At the end of scripture, the last page, you see that, he is still inviting people to come and satisfy their thirst. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Your Saviour's desire is that people come to him and live. Sharing Jesus embraces us all. Like the woman, we can all speak of what we know if we're believers. We can speak of what we've learned about Jesus from Jesus. And we can share in the work of those the Lord has given to the work, has sent into the harvest. Our brothers and sisters who have gone overseas or to the Northern Territory or those amongst us who work on our campuses with AFES reaping a harvest in the world. We can and should share by prayer, encouragement, giving. And yes, some of us should consider whether the Lord is sending us to reap that harvest. Jesus looks at our world, a world that wants nothing to do with him, and he says the fields are white for harvest. We ought to believe Jesus and not think people don't want to know and that it's all too hard. God wants people saved. To save is the work he has given the Son. God has his people. There will be those who are ready to respond, even unlikely people like these Samaritans, the ethnic enemies of the first disciples, stubbornly holding to their error. But they were saved. We've seen God save people we would never thought of, like our Iranian brothers and sisters. God wants people saved. Our world is a thirsty world and it will be until people drink deeply from the water Jesus gives for only Jesus can satisfy. So be like the Samaritans. Listen to Jesus. Trust him yourself and find life and then share life by speaking of what you know and bringing others to listen to Jesus for themselves. Jesus, the Saviour of the world. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, first of all, our Father, I pray that these words, Saviour of the world, would not just be contentless religious words for us. Uh, we pray in your mercy that we would know that Jesus is our Saviour that we would be those who worship in spirit. Know the powerful, transforming work of your spirit in our own hearts and the life he gives. And worship in truth by embracing all that Jesus has said of himself and of you. Our Father, make us, we pray, genuine worshippers who have life. And help us to see the world as our Saviour sees the world, to know its rebellion, to see its judgment under wrath, and yet to long to save people from the world so that they can find life in him. Now, Father, we do pray that you would send out many harvesters and you would give us courage 
to speak of what we know. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.